0: Welcome to Local Motion, a weekly KVNF production that takes a deeper look into our community's public affairs. I'm your host, Cassie Knust, and today we'll peek inside a couple of our region's libraries to hear about the social backlash that has visited their doorsteps in recent years. From book bans, censorship, and even drag time reading hour, our librarians lay out how they have traversed a cultural battleground, all while prioritizing democratized reading. Later, we'll hear from URA Public Library Director Amy Van and the backlash to her library's drag reading hour.
1: There was no real reason to censor that programming, so we chose not to.
0: I also sat down with Amy Dickinson and Sarah Rennie of the Montrose Regional Library.
2: I think that this was a real test of the strength of our policies, and they really held up, and so we didn't have to change anything.
0: But first, this week, I paid a visit to the Montos Regional Library. Come along with me as I pay a visit with Sarah Rennie, the head of adult services, as we find out more about the library's most beloved spots, and even a hidden gem or two. From KVNF, it's local motion. So this
2: room is the Colorado Room. This is our local history archive. So um, uh, this is uh, all the books in this room are, it's a reference collection they don't check out of the library. Um, But we have lots of, you know, books about uh, Colorado history and Montrose County regional history um, are here. And so, and a lot of the books that are in here are in here because it's the only copy of that book that exists. Um, We have all the annuals from Montrose High School going back to the early 30s, um, city directories. uh, So a lot of people use this room to do um, like local history or genealogy research. And we also have um, the full archive of the Daily Press here. So So all of the, um, the local newspapers we have archived on microfilm. And um, we've also been working to get the early editions pre-copyright digitized as part of the Colorado Historic Newspapers collection. Wow. Yeah, so that's through the, um, we partner with the Colorado Historical Society to maintain this archive. So. Um, the papers on microfilm get a lot of use. So. Oh, That's so cool. Yeah, oh it is. Gosh.
0: I had no idea that was in here. Really?
2: Yeah. yeah, it's fun. Mostly people use the the old newspapers to find obituaries as they're doing like genealogical or family history research. Um, But it's really fun when we get to assist in those kinds of reference questions because I just love looking at the old newspapers. It's really
0: history buff. Yes. Yes. Yes,
2: for sure. Gotta love it.
0: So what is your favorite part of this
2: room? I you know what I love and you you don't really get the full experience right now because it's summer, but in the winter time, this room we can turn on the fireplace. And it's very quiet and cozy, and it just feels, um, you get that really kind of traditional library feeling when you're in here. Um, It's kind of a place for, like, scholarship or, you know, some kind of advanced research, you know, and I really like that feeling that happens in this room. So, Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. I can see why you love it. This is so cozy. It is. It's
2: very cozy. It's very hot right now, Uh, but in the winter, it's (laughs) lovely. So, we have our periodicals here, so newspapers and magazines, and these shelves are empty because we are starting a new collection here at the library, and that's a special collection for local authors. So, we have a lot of local authors, regional authors, that are represented in our collection both novels and nonfiction books but we'd like to what we're trying to do is find those books and recategorize them so that they can have their own special place in the library and so that maybe they're more accessible for people who want to read local authors so these shelves are empty but they won't be empty for long mm-hmm. and then these are the main stacks for the adult collections so there's kind of this center aisle down the middle with fiction on one side and nonfiction on the other side Yeah, we have our westerns, our western fiction are over there kind of in the lantern area. We have this nice big display table, which was always super fun to do displays. And then um, back here, we call these kind of triangular areas in the library the lanterns, because from the outside, they're sort of, they look like lanterns. Um, And so in this uh, North Lantern, is where we have adult books in Spanish. So this is something that I really would like people to know that we have because we have a great collection. We buy new Spanish books all the time um, and we have a really nice big collection of materials awesome. in Spanish uh, for children and and adults, which are back here. So.
0: Are you getting more people in who are realizing that they can check these out and read them?
2: Yeah, we have a, we have a pretty good, um, you know, population of Spanish speakers that use the library, but we'd always like, you know, more people to know right. what the library has to offer. I'm Sarah Rinnie and I work with the Montrose Regional Library District, and my position there is the head of adult services.
3: And I'm Amy Dickinson, and I also work at the Montrose Regional Library District, and I'm the head of teen services.
0: Before we dive in, can you tell me about reading and why it's important in your life? Sure.
2: To set the This tone. is a super fun question. So I have always loved to read ever since I was a little kid. I really love reading for the same reasons that lots of people love reading. Like it kind of transports you to another place. You get to experience other people's lives. And so I think that that's really neat. It's also very relaxing for me. It really helps... Kind of, it helps me sort of decompress and just kind of focus my mind on something that isn't like daily life. So I like the kind of ritual and routine of reading in my life.
0: What is a library's role in our communities? I think that
2: libraries are really, really important to communities. And um, I think that the role of libraries is really changing. Of course, we are a center for resources in our community. So the library provides books and movies and forms of entertainment, educational programming, you know, ways for people in our community to to experience things that are free and accessible to everyone in the community. So they're really centers for ideas. So I would say that that's the library's main role. And it also
3: sort of functions as like a center for community. So in addition to being a center for ideas, It's a center for people to be with other people, too. Sometimes that means providing the resources for community groups to to do the things that they need or want to do. And sometimes it's just a way to meet other people or a way to connect with your community, whether that's through a program or just through the space itself.
0: Libraries across the country, as we know, have been traversing social issues the past few years, whether that was covid or cultural battleground issues like book bans, protests against drag reading times. Have any of these issues made it to the Montrose Library and what does that look like for you?
2: I think it's really interesting that books and ideas are kind of at the forefront of, of some of these bigger cultural issues. And we have experienced that at the Montrose Library. So the way that we've experienced it is through challenges to our materials and challenges to some of our programming. So I think that, yes, we have experienced kind of what is happening in terms of kind of the larger conversation that's happening in our community, but we really chose to look at it. We tried to look at it in the most positive way forward or possible, and that is that it was our community engaging with the library and really caring about, you know, materials that the library was Providing. So we tried to kind of see it in sort of a community engagement light.
3: Well, I guess in addition to that, too, well, also it helped us really think through, I think, as well, what function a library serves and the idea that a library truly aims to be there for an entire community. So that can be a pretty challenging task to try to provide resources and, and programs for a whole community. So that encompasses, you know, the tremendous diversity of any community. That means all sorts of viewpoints and all sorts of people. I think that that's an element, too, is sort of like figuring out how to navigate that. How can a library be a true community resource and make sure that everybody can see themselves in the library and make sure that everybody, despite different perspectives, can find what they need on their very individual search for, you know, knowledge or learning or betterment or connection.
0: Mm. Yeah. And what kind of outcomes have you seen come from that positive approach?
2: So I think, I mean, from my perspective and and I think from the library's perspective, we had a really positive outcome. So I just can't say enough about our board, our library board and the role that they played, you know, from kind of late twenty twenty. To through 2023 to this point is when the number of challenges and uh, really rose to our materials and, um, and the public engagement at, at board meetings just really skyrocketed. We've never seen anything like that at our library in the library's history. And so I think that, the, that our board and our library director did a really great job of really creating a forum for people to express their ideas and their concerns and really did their due diligence in listening to everyone and although their final decision was to retain the materials that were being challenged to keep those materials in the library they really relied on our existing collection development policies you know our best practices the american library association's guidance which was great for us. That was a good outcome. You know, as librarians, we really strongly believe in freedom to read and and not um, restricting access to library materials. But also I just think that the process really taught me a lot about how to engage in dialogue with the community. You know, it was always really very respectful and they really took a long time to listen to the concerns of everyone who wanted to voice support for the library and concerns about some of, you know, some of the materials or programs that they were concerned about. So I think that they gave the process lots of room and ultimately came to a what I, what I think was a positive decision.
3: I think ultimately, too, they tried to sort of show the public the different things that govern the functioning of a library, too. So what undergirds it, both the legal precedents and the laws, um, including, you know, the rights of the First Amendment, Mm -hmm. as well as library policies that guide the decisions we make. And that's probably not a a thing that a lot of people go seeking out on our website all the time. Yeah. Like, that's not what people are doing in their free time, necessarily, (laughs) is, like, diving deep on the collection development policy. So I thought that bringing that, the the board making the decision to have, they had a meeting, sort of a, a, a final meeting to kind of lay out, this is how this is how we make our decisions at the library and these are the things that guide us. And for me personally, I actually thought it was a really wonderful display of public transparency and education.
2: Yeah, everything happened very publicly and yeah, it was very, it was a really transparent process and for those of your listeners who are interested (laughs) in our collection development policy and all of our library policies are are posted on our website and are publicly available so everyone who wants to can have access to those i was so impressed by the process i thought it really was a good testament to our community and to just a really lovely example of like a community that kind of grappled with a big hard decision you know and then came out on the other side of it
0: so yeah, that's interesting you bring the board up. It sounds like having a supportive board makes all the difference. Yeah, I've been reading about different libraries who have had less positive outcomes without the support of a cohesive board.
2: I think it's interesting to note that our board is fairly diverse in terms of people's personal beliefs um and backgrounds, and so I thought that that was also really interesting to see a group of people who maybe wouldn't always be aligned, you know, in terms of their personal feelings about these materials, but really came to a, a consensus, you know, around the role of libraries and the importance of, of the First Amendment.
0: Have you had to make any changes to the library because of these issues over the past few years?
2: That's a great question. The, the answer is no. I think that this was a real test of the strength of our policies and they really held up and so we didn't have to change anything.
0: We go back now to the Montes Library to hear what they have on offer for young readers. We visit with Tina Miners, head of youth and outreach services, who describes a mural of hands that's on display in the kids section.
4: The handprint is, that's our tree of kindness. It's in our um, kindness garden. So we have the kindness garden, world unity, and festival of friendship, different areas. So the kindness garden has the tree and the handprints represent a week's worth of challenges, of kindness challenges that the children have completed. So every time they do four challenges in the week, they get a handprint to put up there and every week we have a new card full of challenges for them to complete. When they finished 16 challenges, they get a free book and then they can continue to do that throughout the summer. Awesome, and what's an example of a challenge? You
0: okay? Who wants a shoe.
4: Uh, they start off very simple. Pull out a chair, put your toys away, say hello to someone, and then they can become we more...
2: the other folks, but
4: we ha- already have this. Awesome. Thank you so much. Make sure we walk, though. <laughs> um, and then they get progressively harder, like maybe volunteering at an animal shelter, finding a pen pal, making... Um, a kit full of things that a soldier needs or something like that so they get progressively harder so that older kids can have a challenge as well. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How neat.
2: Thank Thank you. you. So this is where the teen books are but our teen advisory board in twenty twenty. One, I want to say, um, made a proposal to the library um, to redesign this space to make it more comfortable and more of like a hangout space for teens. So they chose the furniture, they chose the decor, and kind of the configuration of the space. Um, we would love to have kind of an enclosed room for teens, but just the, you know, our building um doesn't really allow for that right now but uh this was the best that we you know could do for them to kind of close it in with the shelving and um so that they can feel like they have their own special place in the library to hang out
0: this is so cool just books hanging from the ceiling yeah like, i know like we love the flying birds. books yep yeah. yeah you're listening to local motion from kvnf i'm cassie Canoost. today we're hearing about our local libraries and how they've been traversing social issues such as the push for book bans from some community members. Now let's return to Amy Dickinson and Sarah Rennie of the Montrose Regional Library. Okay, so so reading scores have declined across the country after COVID and I understand the library is taking steps this summer to combat that. What does that look like for you?
2: The Montrose Library for As probably as long as it has existed, has always hosted a summer reading program for kids. Summer learning loss is real; it happens, and so we do our best to encourage um, people of all ages, but especially you know younger kids and teens, to keep reading over the summer. And we do that in you know various ways. We offer prizes and you know incentives for number of books or time spent reading. So that's kind of the easy answer is we try to, you know, really, really encourage and incentivize reading when kids are not in school.
3: It tries to create a, a space that encourages reading at all times. But also, I think maybe there's a very wide embrace too. I think, of the reading that you can do on your own. And I think that that can be one of the things that helps really incentivize it for young people like, or like helps intrinsically motivate them to want to do it. Because reading is connected to a lot of fun things at the library. It's not a compulsory activity. And the children's department is really amazing at our library with the breadth of the things that they do. They do so many things that it's hard to imagine someone not being excited by some of the things that they do. And whether or not it's explicitly focused on a book, too, it's another way to create a touch point with a space that really supports literacy. I'm just thinking of, like, they have these monster D&D games on Fridays. And that's verbal storytelling is what you're doing yeah. when you play Dungeons and Dragons. It's theatrical. And, and so that alone can help develop literacy skills, even though they're not altogether reading a book. I mean, some of them might have their manuals with them. So they might actually <laughs> be reading technical books. So things like that or story times, ongoing story times, and just the breadth of the opportunities that the children's department offers. I think that alone is providing something almost every day that a family could try to tap into if they wanted to, yeah. if it appealed yeah. to them.
2: And then I also want to say that in response to COVID, the library created a delivery service. So when the library was closed down and that time when it was just so sort of chaotic and and all kinds of organizations were trying to figure out how to respond, the library started delivering books to people in their homes. And that service has been so popular that uh, it still continues. So you can order a book from our library or another library and have it delivered to your house, which I think kind of speaks to this larger issue of access to library materials, which I am talking about kind of in response to your question. So there are lots of ways to access learning or reading or entertainment without coming to the library, and delivery is one of those ways. We have a huge electronic resources collection that you can access through an app on your phone or your you know, computer, your tablet that gives you, you know, just a huge library of books or audiobooks or magazines or movies, you know, that you can access from home. So I think that libraries increasingly are being really innovative and putting resources toward ways for people to have access to library materials, even if they can't like physically come into the library.
0: That is awesome. Um, who are you seeing using the delivery service more? So,
2: kind of everyone. Wow. Um, seniors use it. Mm-hmm. Who maybe they don't drive or aren't able to come into the library. Lots of homeschooling families use the delivery service. So it's really there's no criteria to use it.
0: It's it's there for everyone. So that's awesome. Yeah. Are you seeing more young people show up in the library or using the services?
3: We have statistics on programming. So we have statistics on who attends a particular program and can break it down sort of age demographically that way. But in terms of who just walks through the door, we don't have statistics mm-hmm. on on the demographics age-wise of people just coming, getting books, hanging out, using a p- computer, whatever you might just do. We've had a lot more teen engagement in programs. And we have a really committed and really active teen advisory board. Now, I started working during COVID, so I can only speak to a time when most things were shut down. So it's been just a steady increase in that kind of engagement in that age. Um, and I think the preteen age two I've seen since I've been there, a lot of programs developed to specifically to provide spaces that are really specifically designed for sort of the nine to 12 year olds, whether there's a book group for them, there's an art club for that age group. So thinking really specifically about that age group too, versus lumping them in with, with even younger people. And I feel like that, in terms of programming, there's been tremendous response from that that age group as well.
2: I would 100% agree with that. And so I started working with the Matras Library in 2008. And we always had teen programs and we always had children's programs, but in the past few years since Amy has joined the library and since some new youth services librarians have joined, just the creativity in programs and the real intentionality in the way that that library programs have been designed, I've seen a huge increase in the number of young people who use the library, teens especially. It's so exciting to see such a fun and and interesting and engaged group of teens using the library on a really regular basis.
0: You just heard from Amy Dickinson and Sarah Rennie of the Montrose Regional Library. Now, let's sit down with URA Public Library Director Amy Van to discuss the backlash to her library's Drag Reading Hour.
1: You know, we've been lucky in the respect that um, we haven't had book challenges in our area. We haven't had any in a, quite a while. However, we have recently had some programming challenges. Last year, we started some LGBTQ programming that people didn't like, I guess, and decided to try to challenge our programming.
0: Now, if I remember correctly, you at one point had a drag reading time. Yes. Yeah, so how did that go for you? Because I know drag reading times are not something we saw too often on this side of the state.
1: It actually went really well. You know, leading up to the event, we had a lot of outreach from people that were concerned about the event, and they were proposing their official challenges to the event. But upon looking closer, we saw that most of them were actually not in our library district. Very few people from our library district were trying to contest the event. We did have a board meeting prior to the event that was well attended, and we did have some people that who are local get up and talk about both for and against and the people who were outside our district were not permitted to speak at that board meeting just mainly for time sensitivity but you know we had the board event a lot of people were reaching out and like i said most you know once i did research on them i was finding that they were from places in texas and places in california places in arizona but like very few were in our own library district we went ahead with the event. We had a f- very successful event. We had about seventy seven attendees. just to put into perspective, our regular story time is about six kids at uh-huh. most. And so we had to we had it up in the community center area because it was so well attended. And I had a lot of positive outreach afterwards, a lot of thanks, a lot of families that said, "Hey, This is exactly the experience I wanted for my child. This is exactly the experience that my child needed. So we felt really good about it. In the end, it was a very positive and great event. Leading up to it, not as much, (laughs) but it felt good to do it and to see it through.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned that these cultural situations have had impacts on your programming. Because of these impacts, have you had to make any kind of changes to the library?
1: You know, we're pretty adamant about not making changes unless there's a really good reason, such as, like, it not fitting our library mission or, you know, something like that. And that really doesn't happen. We continue with the the programs that we have started, even if, you know, for example, when we did do the Drag Queen Story Hour, we had other LGBTQ programming in place that had been in place for at least a year. And... And I didn't have a peep about, hear a peep about any of it. But then once the notoriety came out that we were doing the drag queen story, our people started contesting our other LGBTQ programming. There was no real reason to censor that programming, so we chose not to. We haven't made any changes that I can think of, to be honest with you, to reflect this backlash. If we think the community needs it, we follow through with it.
0: Outside of the cultural backlash that libraries have faced in recent years, what are some other areas that you would like the public to know about?
1: Well, I'm reminded of of one of my favorite library quotes is that a truly great library has something in it to offend everybody. And I think about how true it is. There there are things in my own library that I wouldn't want to read. It it wouldn't be something I'd, I'd like to read. It wouldn't make me feel good. I wouldn't like the subject matter but guess what? I just don't read it. It should still be offered. So we need to remember that there are things in every library, hopefully, that it might be offensive to everybody, but it doesn't mean that you have to read it. It doesn't mean you have to check it out. It doesn't mean your children have to check it out. It just means that it should be available for everyone.
0: It's funny that you mentioned that because the Montrose Library said something kind of similar that one of a library's greatest challenges is finding content for everyone, and in doing so, it's, it might be hard to not offend someone. Yes. So what else is going on with the URA Library that you would like others to know about?
1: You know, we're doing a lot of great things. That was kind of also one thing of, you know, when we were getting some backlash, is that, you know, I felt like everybody forgot about the great things <laughs> we were doing. And we have been doing for years. You know, we have a lot of food insecurity programs. You know, the mission of our library is to like, you know, see a need, fill a need, basically. You see what the community needs, and you do your best to fill it. So we've created a lot of food insecurity programs. We do a free lunch every summer, one day a week, for any child under the age of 18. We do a food pantry distribution. where We are a food pantry distribution site because the food pantry is actually in another town over. We started a little free food pantry, and then we were doing some backpack program for kids. We also do our regular summer reading program. We have a bunch of different types of story times and just a regular story time, a craft story time, a sensory story time, a Spanish story time. So we try to reach all the people with all the things. We also you know, have a lot of art programs for both kids and adults, both kids and adults book clubs. We also have started a, an art rotation of with local artists in our, in, within our library. So the list can go on and, you know, that's just our programming. It's not even to mention, you know, the help that we offer the people at the front desk and anybody that comes in and needs anything, we do our best to help them find what they need. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like we do a lot of really good things as does every library and, you know, it is disappointing when they start getting some backlash for you know, whether it's a, a program they're doing or uh, a type of book that they they have. So I think that libraries are just very valuable.
0: You can hear the full interview with Amy Van, Amy Dickinson, and Sarah Rennie under the Local Motion tab on kvnf.org. You've been listening to Local Motion, a weekly KVNF production that takes a deeper look into our community's public affairs. I'm Cassie Knust. Thanks for listening.